Amen. You ready to go? Well, good morning. I, I wonder how many of you have seen one of these before. These little shape toys, you open that up and the little shapes come out. Now, they're designed for, you know, around two years old, maybe an advanced 18-month-old. Um, but I have found that there are a few things that bring me more joy than having a two-year-old sit on my lap and do one of these things. And, and it's fairly basic, you know, but they pick up a shape and they look for the place that it goes. And then they put it and they get really excited, right? They get kind of just like delighted that that one fits there. And then they take the next one and they try it a couple places and... By the time they've done this a couple times, they're pretty proficient, and I find great joy in trying to hide the spot that it goes and make them really look hard for it, and no, 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 it's right there. And then you can teach them the, uh, there it goes, you can teach them, you know, the different names, and we have one particularly sharp little uh, girl that that gets to play with us every now and then, uh, who's one of our friends. Uh, daughters, and, and she noticed that there's, one of the shapes is missing. No square. <laughs> and so we had to be honest. But if I'm honest with you, more than one time in the many years that we had little children, and in the years since then when we've had people come over to our house, uh, long after the two-year-old is gone, I still have this, and I'm still playing <laughs> with it and uh, just tinkering with it, right? And there's something that's really fun about going back to the basics, Especially when you get to see somebody else discover something that's fairly basic to us for the first time. But there's also kind of a second level or a new appreciation. Like, it wasn't the first time that I used this, but eventually I realized, you know, it's kind of cool. The way they made that, it doesn't fit anywhere else. Like, one shape only goes in one spot. And I hadn't realized that at first. Some of you are like, that's pretty basic, Pastor Mark. I think we got that right off the bat. Well, the reason that I share that is that's kind of the way that this series, even though it's sort of a back to the basics or we're looking at these elementary principles or these foundational principles of Christian life, as I have been prepping for these messages and teaching these messages and researching these messages, I have rediscovered the beauty of some of the truths that we're talking about and the power that they have. And this message today is no exception for that. We started a series last week titled Kingdom First, and we're really seeking to put the kingdom of God first in our lives this year. And I think this is a theme that God has, has been a part of. And we saw it sort of get off to a good start on January 1st, then January 8th, totally coincidental, so to speak. The subject was on what's my gift to the kingdom, and then I launched a series titled Kingdom First. And uh, we're looking at how we do that and what are some of the ways that we do that. And there's a powerful little passage of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. And I'm going to read that to you again today at the outset. If you have a Bible, um, you're welcome to turn there. If you're using one of ours, it's page 1687. And this will be just a little bit of a review in case you missed last week. It is available on our podcast. It's available on YouTube. It's available on Facebook. There's lots of ways that you can get it through our Church Center app and so forth. Um, But if you missed that, I don't want you to be too far behind. And so here's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 3. He says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. God permitting, we will leave those basic elementary principles and move on to maturity. You see, this section that we're looking at in the book of Hebrews is part of a large teaching on Jesus as the high priest. It starts about chapter 4, goes through chapter 8. This is a little bit of a timeout 
in that lengthy teaching on Jesus as the high priest to really encourage people not to fall away. It's a warning against falling away. And what's implied in the text here is that one of the best ways to keep from falling away is to go on to maturity, to not plateau, to not just settle in and stop growing, but to take the foundation provided for us by these elementary teachings and build a life on those and go on to maturity and become teachers of others in these areas. And so last week we looked at repentance and faith. That's the first pairing that we saw there in verse 1. The repentance from works that are acts that lead to death and of faith in God. That we repent from our old way of life and we turn to a new way of life. We turn our back on the old way and we choose to follow Jesus and his teachings. And so that's what's implied with it, repentance and we put our faith entirely in God, in who he says he is and who he says we are. And we live out of that reality. We talked about this idea that that this is the initiation of the spiritual life. That when we repent from our old life, we enter into the kingdom of God. And we choose to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. As Lord and Savior. Warren Wiersbe points out that repentance and faith have to do with our vertical relationship with God. That we repent from our old way and we put our faith in God instead of putting our faith in the world or putting our faith in ourselves or putting our faith in some other system. We put our faith in the kingdom of God and its way of doing things. And our bottom line last week was that Jesus is either Lord of all or he isn't Lord at all. That lordship is a total lordship or it's not lordship. That we didn't hire a consultant, we didn't hire a personal assistant when we gave our lives to Christ. We took on a new Lord and a new King. And He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And there is one throne and He belongs on that throne. So that's last week in Repentance and Faith. Today we're moving on to the second pairing that we see at the beginning of verse 2. That of baptism and commissioning. Now I titled it commissioning and I'll explain this when we get there. It literally says the laying on of hands. And there's a number of things that that could mean. uh, But we're going to focus on commissioning because I believe that's what the author of Hebrews had in mind when he says that. And then next week we'll move on to the third one which has to do with with resurrection and judgment. And so there is a progression here. Last week we were repentance and faith. That was our vertical relationship with God. As Wearsby points out, this next pairing of baptism and commissioning or laying on of hands deals with our relationship with the other believers in the church, with the church as the capital C church around the world, but also with our local fellowship, that when we baptize or when we're commissioned, that is something that has to do with our relationship with the church. And then next week we'll be looking at the final resurrection of the dead and the final judgment, which has to do with the future. So I want to begin today by sort of defining the terms. What are we talking about when we talk about baptism and what are we talking about when we talk about commissioning? The Greek word baptizo is where we get our word baptism. It's a pretty strong corollary there. And a baptizo in the Greek language means two things. It means either washing or the application of water for a certain purpose. Washing, which is just basically going down this. They used to do this in rivers a lot more. We have showers and bathtubs and those types of things and indoor plumbing, which is wonderful. But washing used to take place in a body of water for the most part for most people. Or it can also mean the application of water for a certain purpose. And so when we translate the word baptizo into baptism in our English Bibles and all that goes along with it, we're talking about something significant. We're talking about something that has a long history. 
goes all the way back into the Old Testament, that in the Old Testament, Jewish ceremonial washing is the basis or the foundation for the New Testament practice of baptism. That over and over in the law, when you read that in the Old Testament, the, the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus and, and so forth, when the laws are declared, a lot of them have to do with being clean and unclean. Have you noticed that? If you've, if you've read through those first five books of the Bible, a lot of it has to do with being clean and unclean. And it was a big revelation to me in seminary when they made the point that it's not necessarily sin that causes you to become unclean, that sometimes just the natural things of life would cause you to become unclean, that that touching a dead body could make you unclean. And so there there was a pattern that you would follow to become clean again. And sociologists have pointed out that there was a real practical element to this, that that if a bunch of people got together that had already been touching dead bodies or doing the other things that make you unclean, they could transmit diseases pretty quickly. And so part of it had a practical element that when you come together to worship, you want to be clean physically, but there was definitely a spiritual element to that as well, that we would approach God with clean hands and a pure heart, that there would be an outward cleanliness that led to an inward cleanliness. And so there were baptisms and ceremonial washings that took place in the Old Testament, particularly when somebody converted to Judaism from the outside. There was a special ceremony, a special ceremonial cleansing that would take place that marked that occasion and forms much the basis for Christian baptism. Now, in the New Testament, we see baptism all over the place. From the very beginning, early on in the Gospels, we hear about a man named John who was baptizing people. That's why we call him John the Baptist. He wasn't a Baptist in the modern evangelical denomination sense of the word. He was called John the Baptist because he baptized people. And he baptized them in a baptism of repentance. A repentance. So this relates us back to last week, that it was this turning from an old way of life to a new way of life. And he was heralding the Messiah. He was heralding the long-awaited Messiah through this baptism of repentance. He's saying, get ready. It's coming. Repent from your old way of life. Be cleansed. Something new is coming. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and is that new thing. In fact, Jesus came to John to be baptized. This is one of my favorite stories in the New Testament, one that I really wish I could have been there, right? That I wish I could have seen. And I can say that about a lot of them, but this is probably in my top five. I would have loved to have been at Jesus' baptism. Matthew records it for us in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. I'm going to read that to you because there's some really cool things that we see about baptism in that. And I think it's very significant that Jesus chose to be baptized. And so we read in Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Now, time out. I can relate. If Jesus walked through those doors and came up here and said, Hey, Pastor Mark, it's time for you to baptize me. I'd have said, Whoa, time out. (laughs) I need you to baptize me, not the other way around. But Jesus replies to John, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open. We just sang, open up the heavens. I love that connection. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Man, I would have loved to have been there. 
to see Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, baptized, to see the spirit come down and light upon him, to hear the voice of God speaking. You got the whole trinity engaged in this one. This is pretty special stuff. And there's some interesting things that we see and we can learn from here. First, it's really interesting that Jesus says, let it be so now, in verse 15, it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And it strikes me that Jesus was the perfect sinless son of God. He never sinned. He hadn't sinned at this point. He never sinned during his ministry. He never sinned even when they nailed him to the cross. And so it wasn't his sin that he needed to repent of, but he came to us and identified with us in our fallen nature and even was baptized like one of us to reinforce that identification with our fallen nature. So Jesus choosing to be baptized, to fulfill all righteousness, Paul kind of connects the dots for us in Romans chapter 6, which we don't necessarily have time to go into deeply, but he says he identified with us, now we get to identify with him through baptism because as he went down into the grave and came up to new life, when we're baptized, we go down into the water and we come up with new life, with the abundant life, with the resurrection life of Christ in us. And so baptism is very, very significant. And it's significant in the life of Jesus. It inaugurates his ministry. And the Spirit descends upon him, empowering that ministry in special ways. Now, it's interesting, before we turn away from John the Baptist, that that there was, as this goes forward, now John and his disciples are baptizing, and also Jesus' disciples are baptizing. In fact, Scripture goes out of its way to tell us that Jesus didn't baptize just his disciples. And I wondered about that, and I think there's a real practical reason that if Jesus was baptizing and the disciples were baptizing, there'd be a really long line by Jesus and nobody coming to the disciples. But he also wanted to empower them and wanted to show that this was not his alone, but that this, this was something that the new church was supposed to be doing. And as they do this, as John's and his disciples are baptizing and as Jesus' disciples are baptizing, in John chapter 3, towards the end of that chapter, there's, there's a conversation that arises where John's, bap- John's disciples are concerned that more people are going to Jesus' disciples for baptism. And the, little, the, you know, the first little church rivalry gets started. And John shuts it down. And he says, wait a minute. It's not about me and it's not about my baptism versus his baptism. It's all about him. He must increase and I must decrease. And so John yields to Jesus and makes it clear that it's really all about him. Now, the last words that Jesus speaks in the Gospel of Matthew also talk about baptism. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, we have this great commission, Matthew 28, verses 18, 19, and 20. And in verse 18, he says, All authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. Then in 19, he gives us what's called the Great Commission. And he says, therefore, because all authority has been given to me and I'm going to give it to you, therefore go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so Jesus not only commands that his disciples go and make more disciples, he commands that they baptize them. He's saying, as you go, wherever you go, As you go home, as you go to new places, as you go into all the world, make disciples and you baptize those disciples. And you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that's baptism just in a nutshell in Jesus' ministry, but it does not stop there. In fact, it only is getting started. We see baptism over and over and over in the book of Acts, which is the New Testament, New Church, uh, the story of the New Church in the New Testament. 
And we see that there, very quickly, the water baptism also starts to include spirit baptism, that there's a baptism not only of going down into the water and coming out of the water, but that the Holy Spirit not only came and lighted on Jesus, but the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. And that baptism is often a step in that taking place. And so in Acts 1, verse 5, before Jesus ascends, as he's still speaking to his disciples, he explains to them, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And the ESV explains that throughout Acts, baptism and the gift of the Spirit are closely related. Repentance, forgiveness, water baptism, and reception of the Spirit comprise the basic pattern of conversion. So when somebody comes to faith, they repent, they turn away from their old way of life, they turn to a new way of life, they receive forgiveness from the Father. They're baptized as a public profession of that faith, and then they receive the Holy Spirit in order to empower the work that the Holy Spirit has called for them to do. And it's fascinating, Jesus is talking about Pentecost in this passage when he says in verse 5, you will receive the Holy Spirit. You will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. He's speaking about Pentecost. And what happens a few days later is the miracle of Pentecost. Everybody's together and they're worshiping God and then the Holy Spirit falls upon all of them. And there's tongues of fire on their head and they're speaking in multiple languages and all kinds of amazing things are happening. And people are watching this and they're saying, what is going on here? And Peter gets up and he preaches the first sermon that we have record of in the early church. And you know what he says at the conclusion of that sermon? When they ask, okay, what do we need to do to be saved? He says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you. So there is nobody that shouldn't repent and be baptized. Every person that is listening to Peter got that message. And every person that is listening to this message, I hope you hear me saying I would encourage you to repent if you haven't and to be baptized if you haven't because there is power in that. And we see it over and over in the New Testament that new converts are regularly baptized immediately after conversion. Like there was no waiting. It was like, okay, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, they're on their way and he's reading from the book of Isaiah, the eunuch is, and Philip says, you know what you're, reading, you're talking about? He says, well, no, how can I know if nobody explains it to me? Well, let me explain it to you. And he says, everything is pointing to Jesus. Jesus was here. He is Lord of all. He explains the whole thing. This Ethiopian, this foreigner, comes to faith in Christ and says, look, there's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And they go baptize him right there. And over and over in Acts, we see people being baptized right after they put their faith in Christ. And so that's why I define baptism in the Christian sense as a public profession of our faith in Christ. A public profession of our faith in Christ where we display outwardly what has happened inwardly. We display outwardly what has happened inwardly. It doesn't bring salvation, but it follows salvation and it gives evidence and proclamation of that. In fact, Pastor Keith was in the first service. Pastor Keith does a lot of missions work in Nepal. And he shared something really interesting with me. And I wish that I would have been able to share this with the first service because it was fascinating. He does a lot of work in Nepal. And in Nepal, it is, a, it is a place where persecution comes at the church and comes at individual believers. And he said something interesting to me. He said, you know, they don't mind if I go over there and preach. They don't mind if I go over there and train pastors. They don't mind about spoken word. But when they find out that baptisms are taking place, they check it out. 
they pay attention because they know that once people make a public profession of their faith, their lives are going to be very different, especially when they do that in a persecuted or an area where there is persecution. And so he was making the point, and I think our enemy knows this, and that's why some of you maybe haven't been baptized because something has caused you to lose interest or something has caused you to put it off or something has caused you because the enemy knows that lives are often very different after baptism than they were before baptism. I know mine was. And so I want to encourage you to take baptism seriously if you've never been baptized. I see in this, in this sanctuary, I see people who have been baptized. I see people who have, I've had the opportunity and the honor to baptize. And it just fills my heart with all kinds of joy and gratitude. And if you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you to take this seriously, to take this as a matter of prayer. In fact, I want to quote the Wesleyan Discipline to you. Now, many of you may not be very aware of the Wesleyan Discipline. The Wesleyan Discipline is a thick book um, that goes over all the doctrine and all the beliefs and all the practices of the Wesleyan Church so we can do things in very much the same way. And I don't know that I've ever quoted the Wesleyan Discipline in a sermon before, but I probably should have because there's some good stuff in there. There's some parts of the Wesleyan Discipline that if you struggle with insomnia, they will cure you of your insomnia. They will put you right back to sleep, okay? Thrilling, thrilling documentation on how to do this or do that or do this and do that. But there's some really cool stuff in there as well. And early on, as it's laying out the doctrines, what we believe as a body, as the Wesleyan Church around the world, they talk about baptism, And I read this and I thought, this is really good. I need to share this because this is what we believe as Wesleyans. We believe that water baptism is a sacrament of the church. Now, sacraments are means of grace. They're ways that God's grace comes into our lives. Things like baptism and communion where we get to partake in God's grace in a powerful way. We believe that water baptism is a sacrament of the church commanded by our Lord and administered to believers. It's a symbol of the new covenant of grace and signifies acceptance of the benefits of the atonement of Jesus Christ. By means of this sacrament, believers declare their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. So it's a public profession of the faith. It's an outward expression of the inward reality. So that's baptism. Now commissioning, or the laying on of hands as it's referred to here in Hebrews 6, is also an early church practice that has its roots in the Old Testament, that throughout the Old Testament you find examples of people laying hands on somebody, that whether that's for blessing or for prayer or for commissioning, as we'll see, that Jacob laid his hands on his grandsons when he prayed for them, for Ephraim and Manasseh, that the tribe of the Levites, as they commissioned new Levitical priests, they would lay their hands and that those who had been serving as priests would lay their hands on the next generation of priests as they began their ministry, that Moses laid his hands on Joshua. And so why do we do this? Why do we do this laying on of hands? Well, I believe it's because it adds a solemnness to the occasion. It gives a tangible, physical expression of unity that we're with you in this. I've had people pray for me and I've had people lay their hands on me and a group of people gather around me and lay hands on me and there's power when we gather around and we make this physical, tangible expression of laying hands on and identifying with someone. Jesus was always laying hands. He was laying hands on children. People brought their children that Jesus would lay hands on them and bless them. 
We see Jesus laying hands on the sick, even lepers, even those who were unclean, because Jesus was so perfect, I believe, that their uncleanness could not make him unclean, but his perfection could make them clean. And they were healed, and they were cleansed. We see Jesus doing the unthinkable. He goes up to, if you've seen this story, the widow of Nain, her last son has died and the funeral procession is going and Jesus walks up and touches the dead body, takes him by the hand, lays hands on him and he sits up, raised to life. Jesus lays his hands on Jairus' daughter and brings her back to life. Jesus laid hands on a regular basis and he taught the apostles to lay hands. They laid hands on those baptized and prayed that they would receive the Holy Spirit. They laid hands on people in prayer. They laid hands on people to bring healing to them. And particularly, they laid hands on people to commission them for the work that God had called them to do. We see a couple of really powerful examples of this, and then we have a lot of references to this throughout the rest of the New Testament. But in Acts chapter 6, there's an interesting situation that has developed where some of the people are complaining that they're not getting the daily allotment of food and the basic needs that are, are for them. And so the disciples are like, well, we shouldn't neglect the prayer and the ministry of the word in order to wait tables. So why don't we commission some people to take care of this problem so that we can continue to focus on the work that God has called us to do? And so they find seven people and they commission them to take care of this issue. And in verse 6, it says they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. They prayed and they laid their hands on them and commissioned them to do this work. And you know what the result of that was? The result of that diffusion of the ministry and allowing other people to be involved? In verse 7 we read, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So the church went forward. It took a big step forward because they laid hands on and commissioned other people to do the work. And I think that's why Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 4. He says to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. It's not just for the pastors and the prophets and the preachers and the teachers, but that, that lots of people can be engaged in ministry. And in Acts 13, we get this idea of a missionary being commissioned when Barnabas and Saul are commissioned. I love this story. It says that in the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. This is a multicultural church. These are people from different places, different walks of life, different ethnicities that have come together in Antioch and are all worshiping God and following this new way of Christ. This is the first place that believers in Jesus Christ were called Christians, was in Antioch. And as they're doing this, we're told in verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. They commissioned them. They set them apart. They sent them off with blessing, with unity behind the mission that God had called them. And the rest is history, so to speak. They go on a first missionary journey. They come back. They go on a second missionary journey. They divide and go on multiple missionary journeys from there. Paul had four different missionary journeys, planted churches all around the Mediterranean Rim, all around the known world. And the rest of the New Testament is the letters that he wrote to them to help make sure they understand everything that they need to know. And so we see Paul laying hands on Timothy in his letters to him. He references two times the the, the gift that you received by the laying on of my hands. And scholars agree that this, by extension, was a practice that was done for elders and deacons and others within a church, that they would have hands laid upon them 
as that symbol of unity, of alignment around what God has spoken. And that there's a spiritual connection. And so that's why we lay hands on and pray for missionaries whenever we have an opportunity, when they come to visit us, just like next week when Mark and Lauren Olson are here and they share with us at the end of service, then I'm going to come up and I'm going to invite people to come down and we'll move down to the floor and and we'll gather around and we'll lay hands on them and say, we're with you. We believe in what you're doing. We believe that God has called you to do what you're doing. And so that's why we do that. And side note, if you're planning to be at the mission lunch next Sunday after church, would you sign up? Make sure we have a spot for you because we haven't seen a ton of of sign-ups, but as often is the case, people sign up right at the last minute. So if you know you're going to be there, please sign up and be there. It's a great opportunity to hear a little bit more and to know more about how you can pray for them and how you can be a part of what they're doing. But here's the best part before we move on from commissioning. You don't have to be a full-time missionary to be commissioned and to be on mission in your world. You just have to have a mission field. You just have to ask God, give me a mission field. Show me where you want me to go. Show me the work you want me to be set apart to do. Maybe it's a school. Maybe it's a neighborhood. Maybe it's a family. Maybe it's your work and there's a workplace that you are on mission, that it's a divine calling, and that you're the person that God has chosen for this time for that role. And we were talking about this as a staff, and we said, man, we need, to, we need to provide an opportunity for people to be commissioned, for people to be commissioned for their mission field, whatever that might be. And so about a month from now, on February 25th, we're going to have a night of worship and commissioning. We're going to gather together, and we're going to worship just like the church in Antioch. And we're going to sing his praise, and I'm going to encourage people to fast at least one meal that day, maybe two. I know, but you can do it, I promise, and then it'll taste really good afterwards. But I'm going to encourage people to fast and pray. And I'm going to encourage you, if you feel like the Holy Spirit is nudging you in this direction, to discern what is my mission field? Who am I called to go and be a Barnabas or a Saul to? Who am I called to spread the gospel with? We've got a night of prayer coming up in a couple of weeks that you could take advantage of. On February 10th and 11th, you could come, you could spend an hour, you can spend more uh, time spending that time in prayer, discerning, God, where do you want me to go to? Who do you want me to minister to? And maybe it's overseas and maybe it's right around the corner. But we'll come together a couple weeks later and we'll worship God together and we will gather around and hear what people feel God is calling them to and then we will gather around and we will pray for people. I think it's going to be a powerful night. I've never done something like this but felt like God was very clearly calling us to do that. And so that's the broad strokes of baptism and commissioning. I want to spend the last few minutes here, yes, just the last few minutes, giving you five reasons why you should not be baptized and why you should not be commissioned. I know, right? You're like, wait, that doesn't seem to make sense. Well, these are things that I hear often as a pastor or that I have experienced from people, and I just want to run through them quickly because I've heard all of these in various different places at various different times, and I don't think I think we'll benefit from this. So the first reason that I hear, and probably the first one, in some form or fashion, is, well, I'm just afraid. (laughs) I'm a little apprehensive. I don't know what people will think. I'm not sure I want to get baptized, because what will people think of me? They'll think I'm some kind of a holy roller or something like that. And so there's all kinds of forms and fashions that this takes. But I would recall 
what we talked about last week of repentance and trust. We're turning from an old way of life and we're turning to a new way of life. And baptism is a significant and impactful step in that process. And we have a new king and a new kingdom and a new Lord. And he is the cornerstone that we're building our lives on. And so if he said to do it, we should do it without asking questions without being worried about what other people are going to think. In fact, there's something I write in my journal about once a week, just as an affirmation, just as a reminder that I am safe and secure in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God, which is never in trouble. So I don't need to worry about what other people think because I'm safe and secure in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God, which is never in trouble. I don't need to worry about whether or not I should be baptized because of what somebody might think because I have a new king and a new kingdom and I'm following him. So that's the first one. Second one, I'm not perfect. Good news. You don't need to be perfect to be baptized. Baptism is not a declaration that you have arrived or that you are perfect. Just the opposite. It's saying I realized that I needed to repent. I needed to turn away from my way of doing things. I need to follow a new Savior. So it's not about being perfect. It's about turning from our old way of life and turning to our new way of life. In fact, if you've seen a baptism here, you know that there's two questions that are asked when somebody is about to be baptized. The first one is, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? If they answer yes, then the second question is, do you commit to follow him all the days of your life? And those are the conditions for baptism right there. If you can answer yes to those questions, then current state of perfection is not a requirement. It's a destination. It's what we're looking for. And I see people get tripped up on this one because maybe you've seen somebody that was recently baptized misbehaving, either out in public or you overheard them saying something to somebody in the church and you thought, well, that person was just baptized. I don't don't know. I don't know if I want to be baptized. Or sometimes I think people have yet to fully forgive themselves for the things that they've done and they haven't received the full forgiveness from God. And yet we see this pattern over and over in the New Testament, repentance, forgiveness, baptism, receiving the Holy Spirit, commissioning. It's all linked together. And so fear should not be a reason. The lack of perfection should not be a reason to keep us from being baptized or keep us from being commissioned to do the work that God has for us to do. The third one, I don't need to be baptized or commissioned to be a Christian. Well, that's true. You don't. Baptism doesn't save you. Becoming a missionary to your world or some part of your world doesn't save you. There's a lot of things you don't have to do to become a believer, but there's a lot of things that Jesus told us to do that we should do, that we're better off if we do as a result of becoming a believer. And so baptism and commissioning fall right in line with that, that Jesus was baptized. If we're following him, we're following his example, we'll be baptized as well. That that early believers were commissioned on a regular basis with a specific place that they were going or an area that they were going to minister to. And we can do that as well. Another one that I, I hear sometimes is, well, I've, just, I've been a Christian for so long. I don't, it seems silly to do it now. It seems silly to be baptized now, or it seems silly to be commissioned now. I've been doing this for so long, I should have done that a long time ago. And the only thing I would say to that is that the best time to be baptized or the best time to be commissioned is the next opportunity. That's the best time. There's no shelf life on this. There's no shelf life. That this could catalyze something new in the next season of life that could be powerful and profound. And the last one that I hear sometimes is, well, I'm not a Christian. Okay, 
We can work with that. That's probably the most biblical reason not to be baptized is you're not a Christian. Well, baptism is for Christians. It is for believers. It's for people who have repented and put their faith in God. It's the logical next step. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I would ask, why not? And let's get to the bottom of that. Let's have that conversation. Let's get those issues or questions dealt with. Let's repent of the old way of life that's not working now and it's definitely not working in eternity. And let's turn to the new way of life, to doing things Christ's way, to following him as Lord and Savior. And then let's be baptized. And let's find a mission field. Today could be the day that that takes place. Now here's why baptism and commissioning are so important. Here's why this is our bottom line for today. If you've been waiting for the bottom line, man, he's been going for 35 minutes and we still don't have a bottom line. What's this going to look like? Don't worry, we're almost done. Baptism and commissioning declare publicly what Jesus has communicated to us privately. Salvation, repentance, and putting your faith in God, those are private decisions. Those are inward things. Those are talking about heart change. Baptism and commissioning makes that public. This takes us out of that vertical relationship with God into our relationship with the world, with the people around us, serving the church, serving the world, taking the good news that we have received and sharing it with other people. Baptism and commissioning declare publicly what Jesus has communicated to us privately, whether that's our personal salvation or whether that's our mission field in this world. Taking that inward reality and making it an outward reality. So there's a couple of ways that you can respond today. Real tangible, practical things that you can do. We've got a baptism class in about 15 minutes down in room 114. You can just head out these doors back here and down the hall. Wait, I'll be there in a little bit. I'm hoping and praying, and I've been praying this for several days now, that room 114 won't hold us. That we've got to move that down to the youth room or something because we just don't have enough space in room 114 for all the people that are wanting to be baptized. And this is just an informational meeting. Then we'll go through the basics of who should be baptized, why should we be baptized, how should we be baptized, those types of things. Answer all your questions in a more private setting. And then we'll find some dates and some times when people can be baptized. And we'll be celebrating those baptisms here in this next season at Linwood. That's the baptism. 24 hours of prayer and the night of worship and commissioning are another way that you can respond. If, If you feel like the Holy Spirit is stirring something up inside of you about having a personal mission field in this season of your life, whether you're a grade school student, high school student, college student, whether you're a young adult, middle aged, or retired, You have a mission field. There are people that are in your life that you can speak to on behalf of God, that you can share the good news with on behalf of God. And what would happen if 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 people in this congregation got serious about praying for a mission field and being commissioned to go and reach that mission field? I think powerful things would happen. I think amazing things would happen. So I want to encourage you to put that 24 hours of prayer on your calendar and put the night of worship and commissioning on your calendar. We'll talk more about those in the days ahead. But right now, this is a pivotal moment. I don't want to undersell this moment, but I don't want to oversell this moment. How you respond matters. So I want to encourage you to respond prayerfully and faithfully. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for this rich history that we have from the Old Testament, the New Testament, the days that you were walking around here on earth to those days of the early church. That baptism and commissioning are a rich part of our Christian heritage. 
and they're meaningful and they matter. And so we pray, Lord, that if you're nudging us in any way, whether it's baptism, if we've never done that, or if we've never done that as an adult, made a public profession of our faith, not just our parents doing something for us as a ceremony at some point, we own that faith for ourselves. And if we've never made a public profession of that, God, I pray that we would respond in faith to what we've heard today. If something's stirring inside us as we think about a mission field, then would you cause us to lean into that, to figure out, get clarity on that, to spend time in prayer on that, and then to go public with that. God, however you're speaking to us in these moments, may we hear your voice. And may we respond in faith to what you're saying. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.